Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Medea. Hi, Kate. Who's on the show today? Today, we will be talking to Karina Longworth, the host and creator of the podcast, You Must Remember This, an amazing podcast on old Hollywood. Oh, yeah, I love that podcast. Yes. And in the second half of the show, Janice Littlejohn, one of the LA Review of Books senior editors, will be interviewing Monica Coleman, Reverend Monica Coleman, who has written on mental illness. Oh, wow. So that should be an interesting conversation as well. Sounds like a great show. Let's go back to old Hollywood. See you there. So we're here with Karina Longworth, who is the creator and writer and podcaster of the podcast You Must Remember This. Describe us a podcast about the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Hi, Karina. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Karina. We're so excited that you are here. Oh, thank you. The new season of You Must Remember This starts this week. January 31st. It's season number three. I've actually lost track, but it's more than that. <laughs> I Maybe think it's five. Pro- it's probably like season six or seven at this point. How are you mm-hmm. counting the seasons? So many. I can count them right now. So the first like 10 episodes were like not really a season. It was just like me trying to figure out what to do how to make a podcast. (laughs) Then I did a season that was sort of related to this book I worked on called Hollywood Frame by Frame, which was photographs taken on the sets of classic movies. So I did, I think, 10 or 12 episodes related to photographs in that book. Then I did a season called Star Wars, (laughs) which was about the experience of movie stars during World War II. Then I did the Charles Manson's Hollywood. Then I did MGM, then The Blacklist, then Joan Crawford. So this would be season eight. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, we're going to have our 100th episode in April. Wow. I always tell people that I remember one day, Karina, we were both working at LA Weekly. We had Mm -hmm. offices side by side. And she said, I think I'm going to be doing this podcast. And I was saying, oh, well, good. (laughs) Good for you. Everybody (laughs) was doing a podcast. (laughs) And then like a year later, everybody's coming to me and says, didn't you know Karina at LA Weekly? I I love this podcast. This is the best thing ever. This podcast is amazing. So it took off in like, a year you were it was really it was faster than i was ready for yeah i mean i started it in april of 2014 and i was teaching at that time and i i knew i didn't like my teaching job and Mm. i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do and i decided to use the spring break that i had as a teacher to just try to make this thing that i sort of heard in my head and it was basically a hobby until that summer when i was like okay well i don't know if i'm going to go back to teaching i don't know what i'm going to do but i'm going to use this summer to try to work on this podcast full time. And during that time, Entertainment Weekly wrote about it. The AV Club included it in their Podmas feature. And so it just started getting a lot of attention. And then I was asked to join the first podcast network that I joined, which was like a new thing being started by American Public Media. So at that point, I kind of like was forced to take it seriously and not do anything else really, like to really think of it as being my full-time job. And for listeners who haven't heard your podcast, would you describe uh, sort of the work that you put into it, which is really an incredible amount of work, and what an episode, a sample episode might be? Yeah. Right now, basically for the past couple of years, I've been doing them in seasons. So a season is usually one theme, and sometimes it's very specific, like six episodes about Joan Crawford, but sometimes it's much looser, like just stories that involve MGM Studios. And then before I can even start producing episodes, I usually have to do about at least one month of just research in general about the general theme. And then for every individual episode, I just read as much as I can about that specific topic. And then I write a script and the script is usually between 4,000 and 6,000 words long. And it's based on all of this research I've done. And then I read the script. (laughs) So most of the podcast is my narration and it's me telling a story. And then I often include movie clips, and sometimes I have actors come on and perform the voices of these old Hollywood characters who are no longer with us. So it's a storytelling podcast, but it's really heavily researched. How much did you learn on the job? When you started off, did you have any experience writing scripts for radio or whatever? No, not at all. Like I don't know anything about radio. So on one level, it's good because I didn't have anything to unlearn. But when I was working with radio people at that podcast network, 
there was a little bit of friction because they have an idea of what, you know, produced audio content is. And I don't know any of that. I just came to it as somebody, you know, I went to art school for undergraduate and I was sort of making these personal movies that were kind of like diary, diary videos, diary films about stuff that I was watching mixed in with my personal experiences. So this is kind of an offshoot of that, except there's no visual element, but it's still very handmade in the same way that those little movies that I used to make were. And what did you study when you went to school? I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago where you don't have to pick a major, okay. which is great because you can, you know, I took like weaving classes and stuff. But for the most part, I studied experimental film and video and got into this sort of cycle of making these videos that were, I would shoot stuff sometimes, but it was mostly found footage and then me kind of reading a script that's a lot like what these podcast episodes are. No, I know you've spent time recently living part-time in the UK, and I always thought it was interesting how America hadn't developed for many years the kind of radio play culture or radio storytelling culture that was so advanced in the UK. And then suddenly when podcasts started, it seems that we've caught up. Did you notice that they've noticed? Did you notice any crossover? Do they listen to American podcasts? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have an audience in the UK for sure, and maybe they are more primed for it. And I just think that things have changed a lot everywhere over the past couple of years. I don't know if I would have been able to do this 10 years ago. And I don't know if somebody like me who knows nothing about radio and had no connections of any kind to the podcasting world could just start a podcast and put it on iTunes and have people find it now. So Dea, I know that you're a big listener and that you, I'm a big fan. You're a big fan. What was the moment where you like realized what kind of story was the one that brought you in? Well, so I was brought in by a recommendation, I think, on another podcast. I think it was the Slate Culture Gab Fest that recommended your series. And I started listening to the Charles Manson season. Mm -hmm. I guess is what we would call it, the Charles Manson episodes. I think episode two, maybe even episode one, I was like, this is <laughs> incredible. Especially the part that felt really difficult to believe was in the beginning you explain how you research and write and do all of this yourself but it's so thorough and you made the charles manson story which of course probably everybody's familiar with in terms of the sort of outline of what happened but you connected all of these various threads and brought them together in this really i thought seamless way it was very impressive and also just super fun it was very fun to listen to and Thank like, you. Yeah, I've been a listener ever since. Was the Manson thing a departure for you from what you originally had thought that this was going to be, or was it part of your original idea to do a Los Angeles story that had Hollywood components, but was not per se about MGM? or? Well, for me, I mean, the way that I approached it was to tell it as a Hollywood story. I have never been somebody who was like super fascinated by Charles Manson, and so... The way that I got into it was realizing the connection between him and Doris Day, right. which was something that I had not known about. And then I started reading Jeff Gwynn's biography of Manson in order to get more information about Terry Melcher and Doris Day. And in reading that, I realized that there were all these other different threads you could pull out that would lead to different Hollywood stories of the time. And you could sort of tell the story of like the studio system falling apart and this new Hollywood coming up by talking about Manson and like what his experience was as somebody who really wanted to be famous during this time and how what passed for like the establishment in the entertainment industry responded to a guy like him. We are talking with Karina Longworth, the writer and creator of the podcast, You Must Remember This. And here is a clip from the first episode of her Charlie Manson series. Charlie Manson's story is a Hollywood story. It's the story of a guy who comes from as far away from Los Angeles as you can get, geographically and philosophically, who came to believe that stardom could redeem him, even after reinventing himself as the second coming of Jesus to dozens of disciples. Certain that fame and fortune are his destiny, he arrives in Los Angeles in late 1967 at a time when the very idea of who was going to get to be famous was beginning to be redefined. And yet he still couldn't find purchase in a community which, for all of its countercultural indulgences and lip service to tearing down the system, was still elitist, still essentially run by rich old guys and the kids of famous people. 
When the celebrities who he had rubbed shoulders with, hoping for an entree into the elite, ultimately declined to open those doors, Manson declared war on what he called, after the Beatles, piggies, advocating for the redistribution of their wealth by any means necessary. The most famous murders ordered by Manson, those of Roman Polanski's wife Sharon Tate and her house guests, were posited to his family as the necessary instigations of the racist prophecy he had been indoctrinating them in. But it's hard not to see them as the fulfilled revenge fantasy of one of the millions of pilgrims who have come to Hollywood looking to make their mark, only to be condescended and lied to and turned away with nothing to show for their efforts. And that was an outtake from the first episode of the Charlie Manson series in Karina Longworth's podcast, You Must Remember This. One of the things that I think your podcast does so well is tell these stories. It's interesting to me to hear that you had previously worked in a more art video film realm. Is there something that drew you to narrative in particular or also to something like old Hollywood, which seems very different from probably what is happening in art schools right now and in general? Well, I went to art school so long ago. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not young. I got into that stuff, you know, 1998, 1999. So I don't know what's going on in art school now. And I would like to spend more time paying attention to like the world of experimental film and video, but it's just something that kind of gets pushed to the margins of my life now because mm-hmm. there's so much other stuff. I went to art school because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with my life. And I just had a lot of interest and it seemed like that was the place where I could explore the most things and figure it out. But I've always been interested in film and always been somebody that was really fascinated with old Hollywood and old movies. My parents were kind of strict about what I watched growing up. And so I watched a lot more old movies than movies that were contemporary to like 1988 or 1989 when I was an actual kid. What did your parents not want you to see? Well, they didn't really take me to movies other than the re-releases of Disney animated movies. Okay. I don't remember going to see any live action movie with my parents other than The Flight of the Navigator until maybe like A Few Good Men. So Mm. that I would have been like maybe 11 then. And at home, they would watch movies usually at night after I went to sleep. So I was pretty much only allowed to watch like what was on certain channels at home, which was like the Disney Channel And then what the Disney Channel did actually back then, I'm sure they don't do it now. They'd have like, you know, kids programming until a certain time, maybe like seven o'clock. And then they'd have what I think, but I'm not sure was called Disney After Dark. And then they'd like, like, it wouldn't wouldn't be like, it wouldn't be sexy. It would be like old movies like (laughs) Topper, old movies that were still sort of family friendly. And so I would watch all of those and stuff like that. But that's why like I never saw any of the Star Wars movies growing up. I managed to see Back to the Future at summer camp and Ghostbusters. Did you like them? I loved them, yeah. And the one sort of live action movie that I remember that we had on VHS that my parents would let me watch was The Princess Bride. But I mm-hmm. think that they just figured that all I was getting out of it was sort of like princesses and stuff. Right. It's a pretty disturbing movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard from listeners who tell you that they've gone back to watch movies because of the podcast? Oh, yeah. I mean, actually, I think that my demographics um, of listenership, there's a large group of people who are older who knew about these movies. Yeah, those people will be inspired to revisit stuff. But then there's also a large group of people who are younger, who have never heard of a lot of the people I'm talking about and never seen the movies. And so they're the people that are like going out and seeing movies that I talk about for the first time, which is really exciting for me. What's a movie that you feel that you have sort of painted in new light or something where the audience would say, oh, I should check this movie out because it features this thing that... I don't know. I feel like I try to do that every episode. Yeah, there's just so many. What's the movie that you discovered while researching one of the episodes that you said, oh, I was completely wrong about this or like, oh, this is really different? Mm, Again, it's like so many. I'm trying to think. Well, for one of the episodes for the new season... I watched a movie that I didn't have high expectations for (laughs) called 13 Women. It's a pre-code thriller. And I watched it because I was doing this episode about this actress, Peg Entwistle, and this was the only movie that she was in. And I knew that she had been mostly cut out of it. And so at first I was like, well, I'll just like watch the part that she's in. But I've heard that this movie is pretty bad, so I won't continue watching it. And I ended up really loving it. 
Oh. It's, it is lurid in a way that uh, you don't think of 1930s, even horror movies to be. It's based on this novel that had like a pretty substantial lesbian subplot. And the censors wouldn't let them put that stuff sort of at the top level of the movie. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why Peg and Whistle's part was largely cut out of it. But there remains this sort of like lingering subtext because it's about these women who are in a sorority together. And then 15 years later, they're being terrorized. And there's all these like lingering glances between them and they'll like always put their hand on top of the other person's hand while they're talking to one another. And people are often like speaking with their faces very close as though they're about to kiss. And you just get this sense of like, you can watch it and just be imagining that they all like had this sort of free love sorority and they don't want anybody to know their deep secret. I know what wow. she did last summer. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what year is the movie? Uh, I want to say 1930, but don't quote me. <laughs> How did the new season come about? What's the impetus? So it? it's called Dead Blondes. And the title is a little bit tongue in cheek, but basically in between seasons, I did a poll on Twitter and I said, what do you want from the new season of You Must Remember This? And the four options I gave were sex, murder, politics, and other. <laughs> and murder really won. <laughs> it really? Won, it won by a landslide. And the Charles Manson series I did was very popular. I couldn't really think of another like single murderer or murderer that would warrant a whole season. And what I decided to do was to try to take apart this fascination that we have with dead Hollywood stars. And particularly, I mean, Sharon Tate is an example, like dead blonde white women I'm interested in this idea of like this perfect victim where we have this idea that there was some kind of potential that was taken away from her or that she like maybe squandered. So I basically am going to tell the stories of about a dozen blonde actresses who died either in an untimely or tragic way and whose deaths have kind of colored or transformed the way that their legacies are seen. Wow. Could you give us the name? Well, we just heard about one. (laughs) Yeah. Is there another that stood out to you in particular? I'm still researching it because, you know, it takes a a really long time. But there's going to be a couple of episodes about Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. And she's certainly like the most famous person I'm talking about. So the first story is Peg Ant Whistle, and it begins in late 1920s, early 1930s. And then I'm going to tell stories that continue all the way to about 1980. So it's not just a like very distant thing. It's something that keeps recurring in Hollywood history. So that's interesting. You don't do the season altogether in advance. You start Doing no, it, it takes way too long. Yeah, Ugh. it takes way too long to research. So as we're talking right now, I have three episodes researched and I'm close to being done researching the fourth episode. And there's going to be a total of, I think, 14 episodes. But some of them are kind of like repackaged older episodes. Like last season in my Joan Crawford series, I did basically kind of half an episode on this actress, Barbara Payton, who was involved with one of Joan Crawford's ex-husbands. And so I'm going to take that half of an episode and turn it into a whole episode about Barbara Payton. Mm. And was it like to have that interaction with your fans through Twitter? Is that common or is that just something you tried for this particular season? Do they? No, I mean, at this point, my Twitter is mostly people demanding to know when the new season will begin (laughs) and requesting podcast topics. This feels like a version of Dickens sort of Getting fan mail about whether little Nellie should die, you know, <laughs> in old curiosity shop and people begging him, please just don't kill her off. I think all um, her little Nellies are dead. All, I, well, that's right. All season, of your Nellies are season, dead. And unfortunately, all the little Nellies are going to die. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> Did you have an idea of what topics you might go into if people had chosen sex or politics or... I can't remember what the third one was. Uh, other. Other. <laughs> other. Or just other. <laughs> yeah. No, I honestly, like, I, I've had a complicated year, and I'm also working on a book. And so I didn't feel like I had, like, a ton of ideas myself to mm-hmm. pull from. And I was really interested to hear, like, what the listeners were into. And I was hoping by doing that poll that whatever they said would give me some kind of inspiration. So, And there was another idea that I played around with for this season as well, but the Dead Blondes track seemed to be more fertile. What's the strangest idea, suggestion for a show that you got through the Twitter? Oh, I mean, I've gotten so many ideas that wouldn't be, like, practical to do at all. I couldn't even say. But I think one thing that, unfortunately, as much as, like, I'm interested in the history of European cinema or, Mm. like, alternative cinemas, that's not what this podcast is about. 
the podcast is about old Hollywood. So I would say that, unfortunately, those are the ideas that I won't be able to do. And have you heard from Hollywood itself? Well, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Hollywood, Mr. Hollywood, there's like a there's like a monster who's (laughs) chomping on a cigar and like yeah, I've definitely been contacted by some people in the industry who are interested in the show and like the show, so it's very flattering. Yeah, has any of the people, particularly the Manson case, I mean Doris Day is still alive, right? Yeah, Yeah. no, I haven't heard from her, (laughs) but from people who maybe are part of the topics that you're talking about, have you heard from any of the? subject? I don't think so. I mean, I got to know Carrie Fisher a little bit before she died, and I had done an episode about her mom, and she didn't seem aware of it. But uh, yeah, no, not really anybody else. So one other question that I wanted to ask you is right before the show, we were talking about your partner, and your partner is a filmmaker. And so do you think of yourself as a film historian or as a film critic? And then you have a practicing filmmaker who you're a partner with, is there a way in which you two approach film differently? Is that a fruitful sort of relationship and conversation that you're having? Well, I don't consider myself a film critic anymore. I mean, I make it kind of a rule to not publicly comment about new movies. Mm -hmm. And part of that is that I'm just not that interested in a lot of new movies. And part of it is because my boyfriend works in contemporary Hollywood. And it's not so much that I have personal conflicts of interest, but I don't want to say anything about work that has anything to do with people he's working with or that he might work with. But other than that, I love my boyfriend and (laughs) we have a really good relationship and he loves the types of movies that I watch for my research. And so he loves to watch that stuff with me and he finds the stuff that I study really fascinating. And and it's really fascinating for me to be able to go on the set of a big Hollywood movie and to kind of see that process from the inside. It certainly made me cringe a little bit about some of the stuff I used to write as a critic, like not fully understanding the way the system works. There is a lot of talk about how the industry has changed over time, particularly people who seem to think of that specific period of the golden age in terms of quality of American filmmaking between the collapse of the studio system and the rise of the blockbuster. But now we seem to be in an era where like way beyond that and we're in a territory where it's changed again a lot. And so you're getting a a close look at that because of your boyfriend and working within the industry at that level. How does that affect the way that you're reading the past of Hollywood or the system as it was before? I might be too close to it to be able to say like exactly how it affects it. I mean, one thing that I can say that I feel like was true in the 1920s and all the way through and is true today is that I don't see any incentive that somebody who's working on a movie has to tell a journalist the truth. Because for the most part, the journalist is not going to be able to find out the real story. And Mm. there is just this history of sort of inventing personas for stars and inventing kind of personas for the behind the scenes story of a movie. And if you want to keep something hidden, you might as well try because chances are you'll be able to. And is that why the story always falls back to crime or to murder, because that's when sort of like the fabric falls apart. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why people are very fascinated with this idea of of Hollywood noir or Hollywood Babylon is I think everybody knows, like, to some extent, that Hollywood is a, a place of manufacture and there's identities that are fabricated. And there's this idea that when you can pull back the curtain, you can see the real thing. But then again, a lot of that is also manufactured and an illusion. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up Hollywood Babylon and the work of Kenneth Anger and that type of way of looking at Hollywood, because I did think of that when I was listening to your podcast. But a lot of the stories in Hollywood Babylon are basically urban legends, right? or it's gossip that's like gone through this chain of telephone. So there is like a kernel of truth, but then it gets mutated and mutated and mutated. The first episode of my new season is about this actress, Peg Entwistle, and there's a picture in Hollywood Babylon, a full page of a model who's topless, and it's captioned Peg Entwistle, and it's not her. Mm. But nobody knows that because nobody knows what Peg Entwistle looks like anymore. Right. Let's tell people where they can find the podcast. So it starts right now, the new season, Mm -hmm. January 31st. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And what's the best way to find it? You can go on iTunes and just search for You Must Remember This, or you can go to youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Great. Thanks, Karina. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for coming. Sure.
We've been speaking with Karina Longworth, uh, writer and podcaster of You Must Remember This, a podcast on the Panoply Network. It's a podcast about the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. We are back in the studios with Anna Schechtman, the LA Review of Books film editor, who is here to give us a recommendation, a book recommendation. Anna, what are you here to recommend? Well, last time I was here, we had a terrific conversation about the foreign films that are in theaters right now. And in that spirit, I wanted to recommend a book by one of the bossiest, baddest women of the feminist film criticism these days, Patricia White. And her book from 2015, Women's Cinema, World Cinema, Projecting Contemporary Feminisms, is published by Duke University Press. And it just takes readers on a tour of women's cinema around the world and the ways in which women are both implicated in and critiquing the various platforms and modes of getting films out into the public. So one of the most terrific for me parts of this book is that I left reading it not only having a much better sense of just what's up with film festivals these days and how do lesser known female filmmakers get their movies out there, but also I was left with like 25 films that I just desperately needed to see. And Patty does such a terrific job, not only just describing the ins and outs of the economic models, but also really close textual readings of these films that still make you just desperate to see them. So highly recommended. Anna, what was one of the movies that Patty's book really left you wanting to see? She has a whole chapter on chick flicks around the world. And there's this one film, Take Care of My Cat, which is a 2001 South Korean sort of coming of age film that is about five young Korean women who have just graduated high school. And in a way, it pulls on a lot of sort of classically American film tropes. And in a way, it sort of demonstrates the complexity of dealing with these cosmopolitan films that are going on on a foreign film market and are drawing from Western culture and yet are rooted in a very particular time and place. That sounds so good. Doesn't it? Take care of my cat. That is a great title. <laughs> Isn't it? Okay, so watch Take Care of My Cat and read Women's Cinema, World Cinema, Projecting Contemporary Feminisms by Patricia White. Thank you, Anna, and welcome back to the studios. We're so happy you came back. Thank you. Hi, my name is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. I'm senior editor at Los Angeles Review of Books, where I cover women, media, and culture issues. Today we have with us Monica A. Coleman, who teaches theology and African-American religions at Claremont School of Theology, where she also co-directs the Center for Process Studies. Her writings cover womanist theology, sexual abuse, and African-American experiences. She is an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and is a sought-after speaker and preacher. She's also the author of Bipolar Faith, A Black Woman's Journey with Depression and Faith. Monica, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so delighted to talk about this book, which I read last year and was so excited about it. And we're going to have our interview on LARB later on. But I wanted to talk to you and kind of fill in some of the blanks from what we didn't get a chance to talk about. So... In our initial interview last fall and in other interviews that I've read where you discuss this book, you call it a memoir of madness. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, I think of it almost as a kind of a genre where people are writing about their experiences with mental health challenges. Some are about schizophrenia, bipolar, depression. So I think of it as a memoir of madness. And I not exactly sure where I got the term from. It's not my term. And one of the first ones I read was Kay Redfield Jamison's book. 
unquiet mind. And maybe the subtitle was a memoir of madness, but that's where I think of it. And so I kind of think of the book as a cross between a memoir of madness and a spiritual autobiography, Hmm. because I'm also telling about my journey of faith and my journey with God and falling in and out of relationship with God and losing faith and finding faith again. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was curious to me about the book, because you've written other more academic kinds of work where you explore things in the book like depression, rape, sexual assault. Why this book and why this format now? You know how people ask you this question, what's the thing you want to do before you die that you haven't done? For me, it was this book. Mm -hmm. It was to share this story, partly because it's my story and I think of myself as a writer, but also because it wasn't out there. I knew what it was like to look for and quest for a story that took faith seriously while living with a mental health challenge and that also still read like a black girl story Mm. that had all the kind of things that come from black church that come from being a black kid in the 80s and 90s and, you know, where hip hop intersects with the new Jack Swing that intersects with going to school and growing up and finding yourself. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that was really compelling to me about the book is that it does read like a coming of age story. And it has such a musicality to it in the way not only that it's written, but in the way that you infuse music into it, not only the hip hop and the rap and the R&B, but spirituals. Can you talk about how you went about balancing that or was that just something that came out? I can't say I was that conscious of it. I think these are the musical influences I have. I love spirituals. I think they are one of the best resources of African-American spirituality that there are these ways we have of collectively expressing grief and pain and hope and the desire for freedom. And so I named the chapters after spirituals because they are kind of in the background of my life, of my grandparents singing spirituals, of hearing them in church. And so that's part of my background, as part of my cultural feel. But then I was still a kid, right? And so I used to go to clubs with my girlfriends and blast music in our cars, going to the movies. And I wanted to include all of that as well. Mm -hmm. And I hope that readers also notice when the music goes away and what that means for those stages of life as well. I wanted to talk to you about those stages when the music is not there and what prompted that music to go away. It was really interesting to me how far you went in talking about your experiences with rape, your experiences with depression, your family issues, the friends who were there and not there. How difficult was this to write for you, especially being a minister and knowing that you would have people looking and reading this, possibly judging where you've come from? Well, it was hard to write because I had to traverse through some of the most difficult parts of my life and relive them, right? I wanted to write them in a way that people would kind of get a sense for what it felt like, not just what happened. So in that sense, it was difficult. I was a copious journaler. I journaled from when I was seven or eight all the way through. So I have all these journals, which helped a lot. Mm -hmm. But then I looked back and I could see I was really sad. It was more palpable to me than I even remembered it. So in that sense, it was hard. But on another sense, I always want people to know ministers are regular people. And I answered my call to preach when I was 19. So I was still growing up and still finding my way in young adulthood. And we still do all the things that people do. You date and you eat and you (laughs) make mistakes and you have good friendships and friendships that don't pan out. Mm -hmm. We're not these holy people with holy things to say that aren't everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to give that gift to ministers as well for us to know we can be real Mm -hmm. with others and with ourselves, but also to the world to say, this is what I'm called to do. We're Mm -hmm. all called to do something. This is just mine. You mentioned before we came on air that you had friends who were supporting you and wanted to get the book, but they were afraid to read it because maybe they'd learned something about you they didn't want to know. What is your response or your gut reaction when you hear something like that? I usually say it's okay because it has a good ending. <laughs> like we know I'm okay and we're <laughs> friends. So whatever you learn, you know how the story ends. But I also get that 
for me, this was my secret. I talk about in the book, like this was a thing I didn't want anyone to know about me. And so there are a lot of things that are new to friends I've had a long time because I didn't talk about them. I didn't share about them. Even some of my friends who walked with me and who are mentioned in the book as walking with me through those days still say, wow, I didn't know it was that bad. You talk a lot about your parents, your grandmother, the friends that went along with you throughout this journey from your hometown to Los Angeles or hometown to Atlanta and then to Los Angeles. You've been around (laughs) and you've traveled around through your education. Where are these people now and how are they viewing the book and connecting to the work that you've done with it? Most of these friends are still in my life, you know. Thank you, social media. Um, but also, you know, these some of them mentioned are my child's godparents. Our kids play together, my friends from college. They're people I still talk to. Sometimes I see them professionally at conferences. Like, generally, we're still in each other's lives. Some people I don't see as often, mm-hmm. but I had enough of a relationship. I could call them and say, hey, I'm writing about you. What name do you want me to give you? <laughs> Or do you like what I've said about Mm -hmm. you? And their responses have been amazing. Mm. They said, I remember that. Those were really good times, Mm -hmm. some of them. And that makes me feel really good. Some were like, wow, I've never talked about this. And that's just what it was like. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me feel like, wow, I want you to know that you've been important to me Mm -hmm. over all these years. Mm -hmm. With my family, as I think I talk about my grandmother passing, my maternal grandmother passing, All of my grandparents have passed at this point, and my father has also passed away. And so there wasn't the sense to ask, what do you think of it? And I didn't ask my family about it because Mm -hmm. they're family. They can't really get rid of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've learned that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But my father and I had a good relationship Mm -hmm. before he passed. So people do ask me that. And we had... Many years have passed between when the book ends Mm -hmm. and not many, but enough years. Mm -hmm. And when he dies and we found a good peace with each other. Okay. And so that's the good story is just Mm -hmm. didn't make it in the book. Mm -hmm. And with my mother, for example, I didn't want her to read it until it came out, but mainly because I didn't want her to be sad. I didn't want her to feel like I know that it hurts to see your child hurt. And I didn't want her to be sad that I had been sad in Mm -hmm. life and that she couldn't prevent that. Mm hmm. But she read it and she read every single word all the way to the acknowledgments. Mm -hmm. She's like, what were those people's real names? (laughs) (laughs) She's going back to have a conversation with these folks. (laughs) Right. She liked it. Mm -hmm. So in terms of my own reading the book, it was kind of hard for me not to connect to my own family because I have a cousin in Tennessee who had attempted suicide. And I know you mentioned that in the book as well. And we later learned that she had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And her sister had acknowledged that she didn't believe, and I'm paraphrasing, that God would do that to somebody. And I'm wondering, besides gifting her this book, which I'm planning to, what could you say to people who have strong faith and who believe that this is not something that God has done to us? But yet it's a very real thing because you've experienced it and you know what that's like. I try to say two things. One is I want people to think about mental health challenges like we think about every other kind of medical condition. If you think of it like you think about diabetes or heart disease or stroke, that helps, right? Because you don't think, well, God wouldn't want to do this. We have a much better understanding of the relationship between faith and science and medicine when it comes to conditions we think of as being physiological. Mm -hmm. I say it that way because mental health challenges are physical too. (laughs) This is our body. It's very embodied. But we separate those out. And so one is to try to take that stigma away. I have a very good friend whose father committed suicide and she has young children. And she says, well, you know, your grandfather had a brain disease and he died from the brain disease. And I thought, yes, this is such a good way of putting it. So the first thing I want people to know is that it's a condition. It's a medical condition. And if we can think about it that way, it takes away a lot of the stigma. The second thing I think, and I've tried to show in the book, is what it feels like on the inside to be suicidal. Because there are a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions that it's a selfish thing that people do, or you're not thinking about who you're leaving behind, or you're quitting or giving up on life. 
And I don't know anyone who's been suicidal. Not that there might not be, but I don't know anyone <laughs> who experiences that way. Mm-hmm. It's great pain. And you just want out of the pain. You want out of just what seems like an endless, endless place of no feeling, of bad feeling, of desperation. And sometimes it's chemical and you can't even explain what it feels like. It's just your biology and brain synapses working against you. And so I think to kind of realize that it's a bad place for someone, like as hard as it is for the survivors. And it was hard for the person who found themselves there. Right now, there are a lot of anxieties in the country, and not just among people of color and women, but for people of faith who feel like they just can't, in the vernacular of the Black church, hold on a little while longer. And while you explore in the book the ins and outs of your faith journey, this is really not about how to come to one's faith or deal with one's faith in dark times. But what is it about your own faith journey that enables you to keep moving forward? I would say there are probably two things about my own faith journey that allow me to move forward. One is I am just so deeply convinced that God is with us. There is nothing we can do to shake God that God is just a bugaboo, (laughs) (laughs) that God is always with us, holding us, loving us, understanding us. I mean, the bad part is God is with people I don't like, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That God really is with us. Mm -hmm. And so even if I don't feel like it, even if we're not talking, even if I can't experience God, even if I don't like going to church, God is still with me. Mm -hmm. That deep conviction makes such a difference to me. And the other part is this comfort with knowing that losing faith and finding it again is part of the faith journey, that over and over again, we lose things and we find ourselves anew, we find God anew, we find our relationships anew. Sometimes we've lost things we really want to lose. I totally understand it. And it's horrible. It sucks. You want them back. But so often we're also able to find and create new things we couldn't have imagined that are amazing and strong and wonderful. Mm -hmm. And for me, knowing that's this part of the ebb and flow of how we relate to God and how our relationship with God and other people are, it kind of makes it okay when you're in the losing faith part. (laughs) Well, no one can see this, but Monica is wearing a Faith That Liberates t-shirt, which is the tagline that you use in the book and with a lot of the promotion that you've done with it. What is this faith that liberates? I have a good friend who does a lot of personal coaching, and he says, you know, people should be able to say what they do in six words. And I was like, ooh, that sounds good. Let me try. (laughs) (laughs) And what I came up with, I teach a faith that liberates. Mm. And that's what I think our faith should do. I mean, I can give you all the complicated historical and philosophical reasons for it, because that's what I do on my job. But I think our faith should make us more free individually and societally and communally, that the faith we get to should not be one that makes us feel guilty, that hammers us in, that is alienating, all of which I've experienced and I talk about in the book, but should be one that frees us into being all of who God calls us to be, one that as a liberation theologian that also has a political and social and communal edge to it, right? That is not just about my own individual relationship with God, but also about that empowers us and calls us out so that everyone is free and everyone has what they need to be well. Is that something that connects you to the AME church? Because that seems to, having grown up AME myself, Mm seems to be a part of the social, political, theological backbone of the African Methodist Episcopal philosophy, if you will. Is that what led you to that denomination? What I like about the Amy Church, yes, are these political roots we have, right? The Amy Church was birthed out of the experience of justice for the Black worshipers, right? We shouldn't have to wait in the back in the balcony and pray later. We should be able to pray when everyone else prays. 
And because that wasn't the case, they walked up out of St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in the 1700s and started this church that has always cared about social justice. And so that's part of what I like about the AME Church. As a youth, that wasn't particularly what drew me to the (laughs) AME Church. Um, I grew up in a small community. There were a couple of churches. My parents chose a church based on the pastor they liked and when the worship services were, which is what most people do, right? Mm -hmm. I like this pastor. I like this preaching. Mm -hmm. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. I can do something else later. (laughs) Right. Um, So that's how we became AME. Right. But I think of it as I was also raised Baptist. And so for me to be AME was a choice. And Mm -hmm. I chose to stay AME for those reasons. Okay. Well, as I was going through the book for the second time, because I wanted to talk to you about a little a few little different things than we talked about for the LARB piece that will be running to coincide with this. One of the things that really strikes me is how literary it is. And there's moments where I'm reminded of why the cage bird sings. And I'm wondering, knowing that you are a voracious reader, if she was an inspiration to you, Dr. Angelou, And who are some of your literary inspirations? Wow. Saying it reminds (laughs) you of that book just humbles me. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I talk in the book a little bit about loving James Baldwin's work, loving Toni Morrison. I love Alice Walker's work. I like memoirs. I like personal essayists like Gloria Wade Gales, Anne Lamont, Renita Weems. These are some of the people whose writings I have read mm-hmm. and and that still fuel me and source me. And when I get lost, I go back to, because I still get lost, right? Mm-hmm. And I still, I find my way back through their poetry or through their writings and through a sentence here or a couple pages here. And I go, oh yeah, this is who I am. This mm-hmm. is who I belong to. This is a tradition I come from. So I'm glad that some of that somehow (laughs) carried over into my writing Mm -hmm. because they're my heroes, right? Right. I don't know entertainers or athletes. I'm a total groupie of authors. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, nerd girls. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting because today they announced the Oscar nominations and the James Baldwin I Am Not Your Negro project Mm -hmm. came out and I just put to bed a story that another one of our contributors had written with an interview with Raul Peck. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was interesting to me is how well James Baldwin's work speaks to us today. And since you mentioned it, um, I was wondering, is there anything that you're reading now from James Baldwin that you feel is moving you or any particular work from an author that is moving you currently? I haven't gone back to James Baldwin in a while. Okay. Um, and I still love Go Town on the Mountain. Like, Really? I, that's, yes. I like the books that everyone's moving on to the fire next time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's I, go back to this. I like, I just, I love the church one. I, mm. I, I love his wrestling and his struggling with that. I so relate to that. But I haven't read it recently. Mm-hmm. In terms of what I've read recently, one book I'm teaching right now, I enjoy teaching, is The Education of Kevin Powell. Mm. And it's a memoir as well, and it has the coming-of-age story, much more hip-hop, of course, than mine, (laughs) because he's a hip-hop journalist and an activist. Mm. And he conveys the emotion so strongly, right? And he's got even much more of a pop culture feel than I do. But I love the journey he's had, Mm -hmm. right? What I've tried to do and what I use when I try to teach is you're telling your story, but you're also telling someone else's story, right? You're telling the story of others who've had similar experiences and showing what it's like to grow up in certain environments, to grow up in certain times, to grow up around certain influences Mm -hmm. and to come out okay, but to show that it's a journey to get to okay. Yes, it is. (laughs) And I think that's why I read memoirs so Mm. much is to be reminded that other people are here, have been here, and have turned out okay. Is your book required reading for your students right now? <laughs> it is not. I tend <laughs> not to teach my own work. Every now and again, I teach something I've written academically. Okay. Uh, maybe I should, but no. <laughs> I tend not to teach my own work. Okay. But I have gone to schools where my book is required for freshman undergrads, mm-hmm. sometimes for graduate students in social work. I mm-hmm. know for some graduate students in religion and pastoral care, Mm -hmm. which blows me away because the book 
has only been out six months, mm-hmm. right? So that I'm on someone's required reading list is humbling and amazing to me. Well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to end with was I've been following you on social media and your journey with the book because I really did fall in love with it when I read it and for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier. But the thing that I was always interested in learning, you've been to such diverse kinds of crowds. You've been from, you know, regular folks in sororities to church folks. What is the reception that you're getting from people as you travel around? And what has been the most surprising reaction to the book that you've gotten? The reception is mind-blowing for me. Most of what I get is actually via email. Like mm. People don't come up to me as much in person. Really? But I get these emails or I'll get them on Facebook or Twitter, like all types of different ways that people will communicate and say, you know, demographically, I'm not a black woman, but I felt my story here. And I think that's the one, the kind of response that moves me the most it's like, oh, I know what this is like, or I've always been wanting to hear something that felt like my experience. And that deeply moves me. I think when I'm on the road and I'm in front of people, and you're right, I go to diverse audiences. Sometimes I'm like in a black church in Oakland. Sometimes I'm at a liberal arts college in South Dakota. <laughs> Other times I'm like in a library in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And so I get to go a lot of different places and talk about the book. I think I'm really moved when I see people in leadership, especially church leadership, begin to talk openly about mental health and provide areas and arenas where people can have those conversations safely and get help and not feel like something's wrong with their faith, not feel judged, but feel loved and embraced. And I've begun to see that happen. And I feel like, wow, this is this is a big deal. Like real change is being made here. Now, you have a website where people can go, and there's something really cool on your website. Can you talk about that before we? (laughs) Yes, you can go to MonicaAColeman.com. You can also go to BipolarFaith.com. And one thing, I think you're talking about the music. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) If you go to BipolarFaith.com, I put a Spotify and YouTube list of all the songs that are in the book. So if you're kind of grooving along as you're reading, you can hear the Jets and In Vogue. (laughs) Takes me back. (laughs) Right. And nice and smooth and funky Mm -hmm. as you kind of go through some of the growing up years with me. Well, Monica, thank you so much for joining us here at the LARB Radio Hour at KPFK Radio. The book is Bipolar Faith, A Black Woman's Journey with Depression and Faith by Monica A. Coleman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 